Welcome to POP, the sermon podcast for Peace Lutheran Church in Gehenna, with Pastors Doug Warburton and Tony Katko. So, a quick raise of hands. Who's seen Moana before? Oh, enthusiastic hands over there. All right, a lot of you. So, uh, for those of you who didn't, this won't make sense. Sorry, but it's okay. Um, So Moana is this Disney movie that's set on this tropical Hawaiian-like island, and Moana is the daughter of the chief, and at the beginning of the movie you see she's caught between these two conflicting worldviews. On the one hand, there's this view to find happiness where you are, and then on the other hand, there's this view to go and explore, to see how far you can go. So Moana's father wants her to do the first one, right? She, he sees that this home that they have, it's small, it's familiar, but he wants his daughter to know that they have everything that they need. And if she would stop dreaming about having a life somewhere else, she could learn to be happy with the life that she has, the life where she's been given right where she is. But Moana, she has this calling, this feeling inside her that she needs more. She has to go and explore to see how far she can go out in the ocean. Now, I think this is really interesting because there's reality in both of those viewpoints. Both are important. I mean, sometimes we need that message. Stop dreaming about a different life than the one you have. Learn to be present. Find happiness, find meaning and fulfillment right where you are. Now that is kind of what we saw in our reading last week about Zebedee. And I love this. If you weren't here, Pastor Doug brought attention to this character that I had never thought about before. He's a guy whose sons were called to follow Jesus as disciples. And Zebedee wasn't. He just had to like stay in the boat, keep going with his normal life as a fisherman. And then he probably would have financially supported his sons doing Jesus' ministry. So even though he wasn't directly a part of that ministry, he still was helping it along. And there's a lot of us who have lives kind of like Zebedee. I mean, a lot of us are not called to leave your job and your career and your life and then pursue full-time ministry. Sometimes the calling is just this simple calling to live a good life, to support the next generation. And that is a meaningful way to live your life. But it is also true that sometimes God calls us to something else. Sometimes God does call us to change. We have this idea of where our future is and where our life is heading, and God's like, nope, I want to bring you over here to something that is new and different. And that's what happens with our reading today with Abram or Abraham. God calls Abram, we know this story, right? It's a pretty familiar one. He calls Abram to move and set down roots in a different land that God has chosen for him. Now, this story is so familiar that we sometimes lose track of what a big ask that was, right? There's no FaceTime, there's no Zoom or cell phone. Travel is pretty hard. You walk when you want to travel. And so getting called to move means he has to leave his country, his family, most of them. He basically has to leave everything he's ever known and start over in a new place. Now, God gives him a compelling reason for this. Here's God's promise to Abraham. 
I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, in the past few weeks, month, I've been doing some study about the land of the Bible itself with uh, Cindy Parker's work. She does a lot of geography and history of the land, and it's been fascinating stuff because it makes me look at things like this call story a little differently than I did before. Because the call, the blessing itself, makes sense to me. God takes, let's start small here, we're going to take one person, one family, and then that will become this tribe and nation and religion, and these chosen people are supposed to live differently. God guides these people to show the rest of the world, this is what God is like, this is what God cares about. And of course, for Christians, eventually that will lead us to Jesus. The point of all of this is to bless the entire world through the story of this family. So all of that makes sense to me, but there's this question I've been asking. Why does Abraham have to move, though? Why? Like, well, why doesn't God do all this? Why doesn't God make this great nation out of this family and this person where Abraham already is? Instead, God says, no, you have to go, not just anywhere, you have to go to this specific land that I have chosen for you. So here is a map. Last, my last sermon was like farm report with Pastor Tony. This is like fun with maps with Pastor Tony. Um, so here's a map of this region, the ancient Near East. That purple line is where Abraham traveled from Haran, where he was, over into Canaan. That's Israel, the chosen land of the Bible. And what's fascinating about Abraham's family, the stories we see in Genesis, is that God doesn't just plop them there once. God has to keep bringing them back to the land. So Abraham and Sarah, they go to this land, but then there's a famine, and so they have to travel down to Egypt. And you think, well, why not stay there? That's a nice place. You can survive famines there. But, but God brings them back into this land, the land of Canaan. And then later, Abraham's son Isaac, Abraham wants him to marry a girl that's not from this area. Abraham wants him to marry someone from his homeland, connected with his family. And so they find Rebecca up in Mesopotamia, up where Abraham came from. And you think, well, they could have just settled there, but they don't. No, they bring Rebecca back to the chosen land that God has chosen for them. And then at the end of Genesis, Joseph gets taken off to Egypt, and then eventually the whole family has to go to Egypt, and they get kind of stuck there for a while, but eventually God brings them back into this land. Like, you get the sense that the land matters, that God is very intentional about where these people belong. Like, here's the place I need you to be, and there you will become a great nation. But here's the funny thing. God's idea of a great nation is a whole lot different than our idea of what a great nation means. And actually, you can see that just by looking at the land itself. So this land, this is basically their world. This is the world as they know it throughout the Bible. And you can see the water there on the left, on the west, that's the Mediterranean. The water down there at the bottom right, that's the Persian Gulf. And this area that kind of curves and is a little bit greener than the desert around it, that's called the Fertile Crescent. 
because it's more fertile. And this area matters because some of the earliest known developments of early civilizations happened in this area. You see, when people were transitioning from this life as hunter-gatherers into a life of agriculture, where you could stay in one place, the best places to settle down were around big rivers. Now, if you were here for my last sermon, I talked about the Nile River and how it's so important, especially in the ancient world. It was the source of clean water that is always there for them. And then it floods every year, depositing these rich nutrients in the soil so that soil is really good for growing crops. Well, the same thing is true for these other rivers on the map, the Tigris and the Euphrates. That area is called Mesopotamia. It literally means the land between rivers. It is named after these two significant rivers. And by the way, do you remember where Abraham came from? He was up there in Mesopotamia, close to the Euphrates, by these big rivers. That's where he started. So civilizations, when they were first growing, the rivers let them have a stable life. They had water, they had crops, and then even very early on, very primitive cultures, it didn't take much to make a raft and then be able to travel a little along that river, which meant that you could start interacting with the other tribes. You could start trading with them and building wealth, and then you could start gathering your tribe into a little bit bigger one, into a more organized nation. And eventually, it's those nations that are able to conquer the world. So these are the empires that are listed in the Old Testament, the empires that are at play here. And look at where they all are based. There's Egypt that's based around the Nile River, and then Assyria and Babylon and Persia that are all by the Tigris and the Euphrates. They're all along these great rivers because those are the lands that provide you with the opportunity, with the resources to be able to grow and conquer the world. At one point or another, each of these empires basically controls this whole map. So I was able to find some maps of these different empires and their territories. And so here, this first one is Assyria. This is how far Assyria was able to conquer. This is zoomed out a little bit. So you can see how far, basically, that whole map we just saw before. And then next, there was the Babylonian Empire. They didn't get quite as far west, but they did go further south, a little further north. And then after the Babylonians, there were the Persians. Now look at this, this goes off the map. They conquered as far east as India, way far into Egypt and Africa, up to the border of Greece. The Persian Empire was huge. What about ancient Israel? Do you know how much land ancient Israel was able to occupy? The height of their power was under Solomon, the great King Solomon. Here's how much land Solomon conquered. That was it. It was big for Israel, but not big for the world. It was no, maybe he had some wealth, but he had nowhere near the kind of power as the real empires, the real powers in the world. And of course he didn't. Of course he didn't, because God put them in this land where it was impossible to become an empire. My last sermon, I talked about how the land of the Bible, this chosen land, is a really hard land to live in. And that refrain about it being with milk and honey, it actually is this reminder that God gives you what you need, 
but you're going to have to work to get it. Right? There is enough for you, but it is not an easy land to live in. So why would God keep bringing them back here? Why does God choose this land for God's people? Well, it actually did have an important role to play on the global stage throughout history. It wasn't a seat of power, but it's important because it's a land in between these other powers. Think about what this would be on a globe, on the full earth. It's where three different continents meet. There's Africa and Asia and Asia and then Europe, right? They meet right here. And you didn't want to travel through the desert, so if you wanted to travel to Egypt or back, you had to go through this land. And of course, all the big powers, it's just like today, they want to interact with one another. They want to have lines of trade. They want to communicate. And then when they're feeling confident, they want to send their armies and conquer one another. And if they wanted to do that by land, they had to go through this chosen land of Israel. So it's not a good home base but it's a very important bridge. Now think about what that might say about what God wants for the world. God keeps bringing these people where it's not a seat of power, but it is a place of influence. People are always traveling through it. There are these international roads that are always going through Israel. They always get to see what God's people are up to. It's like God's vision for spreading the kingdom is not conquering the world, not dominating other people and forcing them to comply. The idea is these people would come through and see, wait a minute, these people are living differently. If you think of the Torah, the teachings, what are they supposed to see? They're supposed to come and see, wait a minute, you're treating your poor differently than we do. Like when you harvest your fields, you leave the edges of your fields unharvested for the poor and the immigrant. Like, what's that all about? You worship differently than we do. You value things differently than we do. You're, you're about forgiveness and mercy and forgiving debts and justice. What is that about? Now, did they always live that out perfectly? No, of course not. But the idea was when they're living according to this teaching, all these people coming through would then take those ideas back home. So now think about that promise to Abraham. When you start a nation in this land that I have chosen for you, the place that is in between the important places of power in the world, then through you the rest of the world will be blessed. So actually, this location makes perfect sense. It's not a place of power, it's a place of influence. And I think that is a perfect way to look at our life and calling as Christians. Which do we value? Do we value having wealth and power, or do we value being able to use our influence in a positive way? Do we push our beliefs on others? Do we try and force other people to have our values and live like we do? Or do we find ways to live out God's love so that people can see we are living differently, make a life-changing impact on someone else? So we've been looking at this in a really broad brush, this big picture. Let's take it down and narrow this lens. Let's think of how this plays out 
in one community. So our family lives in Bexley. And if you know anything about Bexley, it's a tiny little city. It's like two miles by two miles. That's it. And if you think about, as an outsider, who might be important in Bexley? Who has power in Bexley? You might say they're the people that have wealth and that are well-connected. Or you might think, well, the important people are like those in authority, the mayor, the superintendent, the principals, the school board. Those are the people with power, the people that matter in Bexley. But when I think of my own family living there for the past five years, the people that have made an influence on my family are not really those people. Now, it's not that they don't matter, that their decisions don't impact lives. Of course they do. But my kids don't know any of them. My wife and I don't really know any of those people. When I think of the people around me that have influenced my family, I think of people like Coach Chris. Here's a person in his 50s that leads all of these sports camps and rec things with the Bexley Park and Rec. And he is a rock star with all of these young families. All these kids know him. And not everyone who works with kids is good at it. And even those who are good at it, they don't always have this balance of being really fun and energetic and also being really good with those kids who are nervous and making them feel like this is normal and you can ease in at your own pace. And so he is one of those rare skill sets that he is able to do both really well. And Oliver can't wait to be able to play soccer the next time because of one person, because of Coach Chris. He has made a big impact on our family. Or I think of Oliver's preschool teacher and now his kindergarten teacher. I mean, we all know that's a big transition going to school for the kids and for the parents. And it is a big deal when you have a teacher, like we have been blessed to have, who go out of their way to show love and respect to that kid and to the parents. And we all should know this, but just in case we don't, it is a really hard time to be in education right now. It is really tough and often unglorified and underpaid to be a teacher right now. But the impact of what teachers do is huge. They have made a difference for our family. And then I think of where we live, I think of some of our neighbors. And there was this time, not long after we had moved in, that we were brand new parents, and we were in that like new parent fog, where you're just trying to keep up with life, you don't really know what's going on. And very early on, one of our close by neighbors came and mowed our lawn for a lot of that summer because they saw that we could use some help, even though we barely knew them at the time. And, and I can't tell you how much that meant, knowing that the people right next to us were looking out for us, that someone right there cared about us. Those are the kind of people that have made an influence on my family. Now think about all of them. None of them are really highly paid. None of them hold a lot of power and prestige because that stuff doesn't matter. What really matters on impacting someone's life is when you show them that you care. Now, of course, some of those other things matter too, right? The systems, laws, and funding, and all of those things matter too, but a lot of us don't really get a whole lot of say in that. We don't hold a whole lot of power there. But each and every one of us do 
hold this power of relationships. We have people around us that we get the chance to impact their life. So think about your own life, your sphere of influence. Who has made a huge impact on your life? And then who are the people around you who you have or you have the opportunity to make an impact on theirs and show that you care? So before we close, we should think about one other thing because as Christians, it is really important to remember about this story with Abraham. God did not choose Abraham and this family because they were so much better people than everyone else. Like these are the inherently best of the best, the best people, no. Actually, with the exception of Jesus, all of God's chosen people then and now are nowhere near perfect. And we see that over and over again. These are not perfect people. They were called to be a great nation because they worship a God who is so great. And sometimes we get that mixed up. It's about God, not about us. I mean, sometimes Christians get this attitude that we are so much more moral, we are so much better than everyone else, and we're not. And that's okay because that's not the point. We are called to shine Christ's light in the world because we worship a God who loves this world and everyone in it so much better than we ever could. One of Pastor Doug's great gifts as a leader here in this community is he is really good at reminding us not to take ourselves too seriously. And some of you chuckle at that because sometimes we can be goofballs, but it's really important. It is such an important reminder not to take ourselves too seriously. He has said this before, but I think it's worth saying again. If we had an honest slogan here at Peace, it would be something like this. Come to peace. We're not terrible. We're, we're not the best, but you know, we're not the worst. Come to peace, we're not terrible. But we worship a God who loves this world and everyone in it far better than we ever could. Now that is what it's all about. That is a community that is worth being a part of. Amen.